Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. Ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience, this is Maurice Selby, and you are listening to the one and only Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York, the voice of Harlem and the Health in Harlem podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a very important program because we are actually going to be kicking off a series featuring low back pain. This will be an overview that will be given Uh, based on the fact that back pain is a major problem, not just here in the United States, but we're talking about all around the world, Um, especially low back pain and even chronic low back pain. And so that's what we're going to be diving into uh, during this program and for the next four months, really. And so this evening's program will be an overview. Next month, we will have a feature really just going more into chronic low back pain, the diagnostic and treatment challenges regarding those syndromes. And then we'll get into physical medicine and rehab, right? Exercise as medicine in the treatment of low back pain. Then we'll talk about surgical intervention regarding back pain. And then finally, we'll talk about future directions in the management and treatment of low back pain, which I do want to start out the program with hope, ladies and gentlemen, right? There is hope on the horizon. Um, We know there are millions and millions of people out there suffering with back pain um, and new individuals, right, being diagnosed or having issues with back pain each and every day. And so I do want to start off by saying that there is hope, right? But that's why we're getting into this topic so we can talk about, right, the, the best ways in dealing with this problem, not only individually, but even we talk about at the larger levels of society, how we address this very, 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 very common problem. But before we get into that, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to air it out. And I want to start off by talking about something that happened recently on one of my shifts in the emergency department. We had a child that came in with pretty decent burns. And it was discovered that this was likely related to the individual trying to replicate a stunt that they saw on a social media platform. I'm going to specify it, actually, just because I think it is very common knowledge um, when it comes to some of the stunts that are being performed on TikTok. Um, And I'm not just going to shout out TikTok, but also really social media in general. So Facebook, Instagram, 
um, all of these different entities. But especially when we talk about TikTok, we've seen some concerning things. Uh, we saw the crate challenge. I can't remember the specific name of it, but that challenge where they stack the crates and individuals walking down. And fortunately, at least on my shifts, I have not seen patients <laughs> with complications from that stunt, right? With broken bones or um, more serious injuries. Thank God I was waiting for it. Um, and really just looking at those videos, man, some of those falls, I was like, well, they presented to somebody else as ER. Um, and, and I wonder, um, haven't been able to see this for myself, but just curious about um, if anyone, you can even hit us up on a comment on whether or not you've noted um, any reports of serious injuries from that. I'm pretty sure they're out there. Um, I have, again, have not seen it myself, but I'm concerned about that, but also was concerned about this stunt or dare, whatever you want to call it, um, that was attempted, right? And this actually happened uh, in Oregon, where a young teenager burned herself uh, during one of these challenges. Um, and the victim, her name was Destiny Crane, um, actually underwent a tracheotomy and had two skin graft surgeries after a bottle of isopropyl alcohol exploded um, onto her her body and face. Um, so she sustained pretty significant injuries, as you would guess, right, from her having to require um, a tracheostomy. And we're talking about, right, for this young person, lifelong uh, disability, potentially, um, and even, right, disfigurement from these injuries. Um, and so not just this challenge, right? Yeah, I mean, I really don't want to get into details about the stunt, to tell you the truth. I don't want to talk about where it came from or the individual. And I have that information right here before me, um, the individual that sort of started this, um, who actually has a disclaimer right in their videos telling individuals not to try this at home. But I feel like I have to reiterate that message. Um, one, to the TikTokers out there doing these stunts, um, being mindful that there are many individuals watching these videos, including young individuals, right? Prefrontal frontal cortexes, uh, cortices, not very well formed. And so sometimes their judgment can be off. So a disclaimer might not be enough. And really what I would might advocate or what I will advocate is just not putting these posts up for individuals to see. Maybe uh, you need to go audition, you know, with Netflix or something or create some sort of special <laughs> that can be aired um, professionally. But I mean, doing this and, and really putting it on social media, I think the message that people take home from that is that this is something that is right. They can do themselves. Right. We talk about do it yourself, um, everything, building desks and do it yourself. Halloween costumes. Well, people might take it as do it yourself stunts or tricks. And we know the adrenaline and dopamine rush. Right. That comes with getting likes and views on these platforms. Um, that could drive individuals to try to replicate, replicate these challenges or stunts. And so I just got to put that out there. Ladies and gentlemen, um, if we could please think about these things before we post these stunts and challenges and encourage other people to try these things. And even if you right, these are going to continue to happen. I think that's a fact. Um, what I'm asking for is totally <laughs> not going to happen as far as not posting these videos, but what I ask is that individuals consuming this media, right, let's think extra hard about trying any of these stunts. Um, really, I mean, 
just looking at some of the the outcomes, right? Some of the the funny things about them or what draws us in is what happens to people. We see people getting hurt uh, from these or falling on these videos. And so that right there should be enough to stop us. But I'm just going to put that plea out there and that let's really exercise caution and not try these things at home, um, as many of their creators actually do say. But I'm just going to put it out there again. Another thing that came to our attention, and actually this was uh, sent in by Reed Vero, the one and only. And this was a special meeting, June 2021 of this year. The AMA had a special meeting talking about social media networks and really why it must be a crackdown on medical misinformation. It was noted at this meeting that more than two thirds of Americans get their news right from at least one social media source or outlet. However, one thing that is a fact, ladies and gentlemen, is that the information coming from many of these platforms does not undergo the same amount of vetting. Right. The vetting process is not equal to that of professional news organizations. And this really just opens the door for medical information to be spread out there. And we're talking about everything from misinformation and disinformation regarding the measles, mumps and rubella vaccines and links to autism, which we know, ladies and gentlemen, that is not true. Um, Myriad studies, so many studies that have come out debunking that claim. But also there has been a lot of information, as we already know, right, dealing with COVID-19, the disease itself, but also talking about the vaccines. And basically, um, there was an analysis of YouTube videos, right, about COVID-19 that showed 25% of the topic videos contain misleading information. There was also uh, some studies cited that showed that more than half of the health articles posted online are deemed problematic, quote unquote. And so, I just say this to say that there there's a lot, as we know, there's a ton of problematic misinformation out there. And we we really need to be cognizant of that. And it actually led to the American Medical Association, their House of Delegates, um, directed the organization to really encourage social media companies and organizations to further strengthen how they moderate their content Um, And the policies surrounding that, especially when it comes to medical and public health misinformation. Um, And this would include enhanced content monitoring, augmentation of recommendation engines focused on false information. Right. So playing with those algorithms so that we can really not allow the spread of misinformation and disinformation when it comes to this uh, health information and, and medical information. They also called for the support and dissemination of accurate medical and public health information by public health organizations and health policy experts. And then finally, the American Medical Association House of Delegates directed the AMA to really partner with public health agencies and organizations in an effort to establish right real relationships with journalists, with news agencies in order to enhance the information that is being disseminated, right? In terms of real, reliable, evidence-based information that is accurate and that people can really use to really live happy and healthy 
lives, and especially during this time um, as we struggle with multiple health crises, right? I mean, COVID on top of all of them, but uh, we've been having some things that we've been dealing with, including low back pain, which we'll get into. Um, but that is really um, important and, and looking forward to what comes from those recommendations from the American Medical Association. All right. And so that is it for airing it out. And ladies and gentlemen, um, I want to encourage you to get involved in this. If there's something that you came across that is questionable as far as um, inaccurate medical information online, something that you might want us to look into maybe here on Health in Harlem um, or just something that you want to air out. I want you to send that to me. I want you to send that to us um, so that we can get this up there. We can we can talk about it on this program You can hit us up at M Selby, that's M-S-E-L-B-Y, that's one word, at healthinharlem.org. Once again, M Selby, so M-S-E-L-B-Y, at healthinharlem, one word, dot O-R-G. Just send your your air it out content there, and we'll get to it, right? We want to get that out there and really address what you're seeing out there, because We need you to be our eyes. Now, one last thing before we get into our main topic for the program. Last week, you all know, I'm assuming everybody out there knows, last Friday, October 29th, the Pfizer-BioNTech coronavirus vaccine was approved for emergency use in children ages 5 to 11 years of age. This was um, an approval from the FDA. And at this time, about 28 million children are eligible for the shot. Actually, the first doses, at least in New York City, according to Mayor Bill de Blasio, there was some talk about getting the first doses into children in New York City today. Now, the doses will be about one third of the adult dose, and this will be a two injection uh, vaccine for full vaccination. And those injections will be spread three weeks apart. And this is because, right, this approval is because the vaccine vaccine has been shown to generate significant protection in children in this age group against the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And one thing we have to understand, ladies and gentlemen, we talked about this last week. We've been talking about it forever up to this point. Um, But again, in really squashing misinformation that is out there, children can be harmed from SARS-CoV-2. As of this week, there have been 8,300, so 8,300 children ages 5 to 11 years of age that have been hospitalized with COVID-19, and at least 170 have died, right? This is, we're talking about the um, entirety of the pandemic. And so there are children that are being harmed from COVID. And then when we talk about, again, those indirect harms Um, When we talk about the school closures, the effect on the social lives of our children, right? One thing I I like to think about is that with the holidays coming up and we're going to be around my daughter's grandparents, we're going to be around other children, holiday parties and gatherings, um, things of that nature. Well, I think we can have a little bit more peace of mind knowing that our children will also be protected, right, if we get them vaccinated. And so... I'm going to put it out there. My daughter is on deck. (laughs) She doesn't know it yet that she's due for another shot, but she's going to get it. Um, And that's because in going through all of this data myself, um, I do too think that it is the safest thing for her and those around her. Right. 
Um, it is not just for uh, my daughter, Imani, but we're talking about protecting her friends that she plays with, her classmates, protecting their families, right? Her classmates' families um, as they go home because they will be less likely to acquire the infection from her being that she is going to be vaccinated. So just wanted to get that out there before we get into our program. And so look up above. It's not a bird. It's not a plane. It is a biped homo sapien. We often think of our legs essentially holding us up, right? Uh, but in all reality, it's actually our spines that have a seemingly defying gravity um, as we're walking around, handling business during our active and waking hours. And if you look at the spine itself removed from the body, right, we just see a collection of bony plates that are stacked on top of one another. And just think about adding, right, some additional connective tissue there. So we talk about this tough, fibrous strands of protein all bundled together that are holding all of these plates together, not too tightly, right, because we need them to move, um, but it's enough to keep everything together. And there's some wiggle room to allow some flexibility to all of this. And then we lay over some muscle over it all where some of the insertion points, so where the actual muscle attaches, right? And it has maybe another anchoring support. We can begin to move elements of our spine. We can even have origins of muscle. So some muscle that it starts at the spine itself, but then attaches to other bones, right? Such as our legs, allowing us to lift our, let's say our thighs, for instance, um, if we want to do some leg ups or some high steps, well, guess what? That anchoring support is your spine, right? Holding everything up and um, allowing that muscle to contract and then lift our leg ups. Um, and then finally, if we look at all of this, right, it's not functional without a nice collection of nerves, right? And the spinal cord that miraculously allows us to coordinate our activities in all of these structures, um, and right from the constant push and pulls to the maintenance of our posture against gravity. This is our back, ladies and gentlemen. And just like any other complex structural system, there are countless things that can go wrong. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, an amazing structure in and of itself. Um, but just when we talk about back pain in this country and around and around the world, it's essentially the chief complaint that brings in over six million people to the emergency department each year in the United States. Two thirds of adults are affected by low back pain at some point in their lives. And I think that number is probably even higher because there's a good amount of <laughs> unreported cases, right? Or individuals that just tough it out um, for various reasons. It is the second most common complaint in ambulatory medicine third in terms of healthcare dollars spent, right? Just behind cancer and heart disease, um, we're talking about totals in excess of $88 billion annually spent on caring for or dealing with low back pain. Um, and that's not to mention the rates of disability, right? The economic impact when we talk about individuals being disabled from this. And it occurs at least once in 85% of adults younger than 50 years of age and 15 to 20 percent of Americans with low back pain uh, each year. And let's let's face it, really. Right. There's even more at stake here besides just the discomfort that comes with low back pain. When it comes to back pain, we're talking about the most expensive and most common cause of disability in the United States. And in many cases, 
right? It can be the precipitant to things like opioid addiction, um, especially when that pain is difficult to manage. And so that's why it is such an important topic. That is why we decided to really focus on this on health in Harlem and not just on one program. Again, this is the overview, right? This is the intro because of how big of a problem this is um, individually, but also we see the societal impacts, as we said, um, major disability attributed to this, major problems when it comes to pain management, chronic pain management, um, and even when we talk about things like the opioid crisis, right? There are some roots in back pain. Um, and so that's why it's so important. Now, as much as it sucks, low back pain actually makes a lot of sense, a lot of anatomic sense, that is, right? Pathophysiologic sense. And while the pathophysiology of mechanical low back pain, right, it is very complex. When we think about this particular region of the body, when we talk about its importance in keeping us erect, when we talked about load bearing, right, being able to hold the weight, everything from carrying our own body weight to maybe carrying bags or equipment or whatever we're doing, right, it makes sense that problems can arise here. And when we look at the spinal column in its entirety, right, let's start from the top in the cervical region, we see vertebrae at the top, the cervical vertebrae, and we start off with the atlas, which is just beneath the skull base, and then we have the axis, which actually has something called an odontoid process, so it's like a little um, stick or a spur that sticks up out of that second vertebrae. But one thing that's interesting here is that you note that the vertebrae in this region are smaller, they are thinner, and as we begin to go down, right, to the seventh cervical vertebrae, so there are seven cervical vertebrae, we begin to see these vertebrae becoming larger, especially their bodies, the body of the vertebrae, the largest part of each of these bones become thicker and larger. And that's basically the pattern as we go through the 12 thoracic vertebrae, um, we see a lot more bony prominences arising from them where various muscles can attach. Um, we also see uh, some of these prominences where they can articulate or connect with the bones of the rib cage, right? And as we go down, continuing down um, after that, that 12th thoracic vertebrae, we enter the lumbar region. And here we see those bones become even thicker and broader, especially as we said, those vertebral bodies, right? The largest masses in each of these vertebrae. We also have various what we call facets, articular facets, basically where these bones can sort of stack on top of one another um, up and down the spine. And then they have various openings, um, including foramina that allow for blood vessels and nerves to travel through. Within these interarticular facets, nerves can actually travel out from the spinal cord because in the center, so just behind the actual body of these vertebrae, right? And in front of what we call the spinous process. So that that tailbone or that bone that you can touch when you arch your back, um, those bony prominences that you can touch in the middle of your back, those are your spinous processes. And so in between that area, between the vertebral body, right? The back part of that, and right before those spinous processes, you have 
you have the canal that contains the spinal cord, which is part of the central nervous system, right? Because it literally comes directly from the brain itself. And so as we go down a spinal column, column we have five lumbar vertebrae, right? Five backbones in that lumbar region. And then we have another five sacral bones. Now, actually in adults, especially these bones are fused. So we're essentially one, one bone at that point. Um, and then we have three to five coccygeal bones. And altogether, this accounts for approximately 32 to 33 vertebrae. Um, but when we talk about adults, ladies and gentlemen, again, because of those fusion, the fusion that takes place in the lower portion of the spinal column, the sacrum and the coccyx, we have about 24 functional vertebrae. All right. And so that is our spinal column. And we're going to focus on the lumbar region. When we look at the lower spinal column, especially in this lumbar region, structure fits function of the lower back. And as we said, right, we see those vertebral bodies becoming a bit larger. Um, we actually see some of those processes, some of these uh, other prominent features of the bone becoming more prominent, right? Because a lot of muscles are attaching there, a lot of very heavy and strong muscles um, that are attaching there that are important for keeping our bodies erect, that are important for allowing us to walk and to lift our legs, to climb stairs, to run and jump um, and so on. And really just bearing the day-to-day -day load that we are carrying um, as far as our own body weight, but also anything that we might be carrying in addition to that, right? So structure fits function. We see those bones become thicker in that lumbar region. There is a great deal of flexibility of the lumbar region um, in the spine. And this arises from the, collect the collective motion of all five of the lumbar vertebrae and all of that connect connective tissue that we mentioned uh, prior and the musculature there. And 80 to 90% of the lumbar flexion and extension that occurs. So the forward movements of the spine, right? As we bend over, let's say, maybe to pick something up or even with extension, when we sort of lean back, let's say when we're stretching, yawning in the morning, you're arching your, your, your uh, back backwards, right? A lot of that extension and flexion occurs at the L4, L5, and L5, S1 intervertebral discs. And actually, I meant to mention uh, that before, as far as the anatomy of the spine, we have in between each of these bones, right? Those vertebrae um, or these individual portions of the backbone, we have what are called intervertebral discs. Um, they are basically like little cushions that sit in between the bones as they are stacked on top of one another. And these discs largely composed of a lot of collagen, right? A protein that is very, very important in the formation of our connective tissue structures, our ligaments, tendons. Um, there is a lot of collagen present and they form two parts of these discs, the annulus fibrosis, which is the outer covering of these discs. And then inner center of it, right, is jelly. <laughs> uh, this gelatinous material called the nucleus pulposus. And uh, when you think about it, right, this sort of outside harder uh, substance this covering and then inside it this nice jelly it just really lends to the thinking of this being right a cushioning um, between those bones that allows again with us bearing the load bearing our 
uh, body weight on a day to day basis, lifting heavy things. These these cushions allow for compression between those bones and flexibility um, as well. And so looking at this, I mean, like this to me, right, is God's creation. When I look at it, when I think about it, how awesome it is, um, even just thinking about these little gelatinous structures <laughs> that we have in between these bones to right, create that cushioning effect. When we look at the spine in its totality, right, while it works really well at supporting our upper body, right, keeping us erect um, with all of these complex components, all of the bones involved, all of the ligaments, the tendons, the muscle, um, even when we talk about the nerves, right, um, there are many opportunities for things to or problems to arise. And especially when we talk about the innervation to this area. So the nerve supply, there are a lot of nerves present and many of the components mentioned above actually have very good sensory innervation, meaning, right, there are a lot of nerves that can take signals from this area uh, of the back to our brain and tell us when something is wrong, right? Um, and they can definitely send back those signals, especially when there's damage to any of these structures. Um, and that will be sensed as pain. And so it, it this is why I said, right, it is, <laughs> it actually makes a lot of sense. And we talk about low back pain. Um, we talk about the function of the lower back, especially this lumbar region where a lot of our mobility right, takes place or our ability to um, be flexible, um, our load bearing portion of our back. This is why it makes a lot of sense that this is a very problematic area when we talk about pain. And with that said, we are going to jump right into acute low back pain. Nothing cute about it, really, <laughs> and, um, other than it is acute in the sense, right, that this happens um, often suddenly and often uh, for a short duration. And so acute back pain, acute low back pain especially, is usually related to some recent traumatic incident or event. Whether it was a fall, whether it was from a car accident, whether you were hit in the back during sports. Um, I can imagine this shopping season, right? Um, individuals being vaccinated and we see the rates of COVID going down. People are going to be in those stores. And so taking elbows to the side on Black Friday, whatever it may be, there's usually some sort of inciting event uh, to this type of low back pain. Um, can also result, right, not even from trauma, but even abnormal movement. So sometimes individuals have this sort of sudden onset pain. Maybe they were reaching down to pick up their child or pick up a heavy bag. Um, maybe they turned a certain way in the morning when they work, woke up. Um, and it led to this sort of sudden onset acute pain. One thing we also know is that this can result from cumulative stress and strain, especially when it comes to work-related back pain, right? The constant wear and tear from lifting heavy objects or carrying heavy items, even repetitive movements. If we think about some of uh, the essential workers out there, right, that will be getting ready for this holiday season, maybe packing bags or boxes in warehouses uh, for uh, companies like Amazon, right? That repetitive up and down movement, picking up boxes, moving them, walking them everywhere. Um, that could lead to acute low back pain. Um, even sitting or standing for prolonged periods, right? That can also uh, lead to this type of pain occurring. Now, as uncomfortable as this might be, and I know it can be pretty uncomfortable, 
um, taking care of patients in the emergency department coming in with these complaints, right? Um, you know, it's not uncommon for individuals to complain of 10 out of 10 pain, right, when it comes to the intensity of that pain. Um, and so not to minimalize this a type of low back pain, uh, but the fortunate thing is that the prognosis is very good. We're talking about these episodes usually resolving within two to four weeks. This is often caused by a strain, right, mainly referring to injury of a muscle of some sort or a sprain, which can be an injury to the ligamentous or connective tissue um, in the spines, uh, in the spine itself, right? And this can be healed. It might take a little time, but individuals can heal from these insults. And as we said, the prognosis is very good with most individuals, right? 70% of people feeling better within one week uh, of the onset of the pain, 80% in two weeks, and in excess of 90% uh, in one month. Now, we do have to talk about the 10% that have persisting pain, right? 10% um, of these individuals might go on to actually develop chronic low back pain. And when we think about this, right, why does it take so much time, right? Um, normal connective tissue takes approximately 6 to 12 weeks to heal, right? And this is because there is not a good amount of blood supply to these structures um, often. The ligamentous, right, and this connective tissue is often what we call avascular, meaning it does not have a direct blood supply. So anything that it is getting in terms of nutrition and uh, inflammatory mediators, right? Uh, cells that are coming in to repair the damage that is done. This is not getting delivered directly to those tissues. And so it can take some time for these injuries to heal. And one thing that that explains, right, is that there is a high rate of recurrence. And so up to 40% of individuals after suffering acute back pain, they will have recurrence of that pain um, within weeks of that initial injury. But also, it really explains why we don't call back pain chronic until after approximately 12 weeks or three months that that pain has been present. Now, for those individuals, right, diagnosed with chronic low back pain, um, is there still a chance at recovery? Yes, indeed, there is. Uh, there are individuals that can go on to still fully recover after three months of having back pain. However, there is an estimated 15 to 20% of people that will go on to have more protracted pain. And there is also an estimated 2 to 8% that will really be truly diagnosed with chronic low back pain. And of those that still have pain and remain somewhat disabled for more than six months, fewer than half will return to work after two years of low back pain a return to work is even more unlikely. So essentially, I mean, the, at this point, the longer you are having uh, this particular type of pain, right, the more likely that it will be long lasting um, and that it could lead to uh, disability. And so this is where, right, we said the leading cause of disability in this country and in many parts of the world, when we talk about the economic impacts, when we talk about right? Diagnosing and treating this illness, this is where all of the challenges lies. And this is why 
Um, this is such an important topic and that we have decided to focus on this um, on our program. And so let's get into the cause, right? Especially when we talk about chronic back pain, um, what is the cause of this pain? And I get this question so many times, patients coming into the emergency department, they've been having this back pain for years. And on that visit, um, <laughs> under my care, they want the answer that they have been seeking uh, for months, for years, um, in many cases, some, some individuals, decades, right? And trying to find out what is the cause of their pain. And unfortunately, uh, more bad news here in that the majority of these cases, there really is no established cause. We're talking um, in excess of 80% of these cases being what we call nonspecific, right? Where there's no identifiable cause. Now, oftentimes it is assumed that the etiology or the cause of this type of pain, right, is due to what we call degenerative changes. So basically the uh, tissues degrading over time, right? The, the ligaments, and as we said, um, and tendings, right? This constant wear and tear, the muscles um, becoming weaker um, around these structures and this resulting in degeneration, even of the bony tissue itself, um, especially when we consider things like osteoarthritis, um, this constant degrading um, degeneration of these connective tissues, the bones sort of beginning to wear down and rub on each other, right, that this has been the culprit, right, that has uh, been many times, and I've done this myself, even in the care of patients, where I said, hey, you might just have degenerative joint disease, right, this arthritis that is developing in the spine, or this wear and tear of tissues that is the cause of your pain. Um, there are other causes that might be entertained, such as herniated discs, so those discs in between the vertebrae, right, sometimes they can bulge out um, and they can even press on the spinal cord and um, other nerves and cause pain. We talk about things like spinal stenosis, sciatica as other causes, um, and we will elaborate more on these entities when we talk about chronic low back pain in the next program. Um, but one thing, right, that has been noted that in multiple controlled studies, there hasn't been any real correlation between the patient's clinical symptoms, meaning the pain that they're experiencing, um, their actual symptoms that they're having, the severity of the symptoms, and signs of degenerative disease on radiologic imaging, right? So x-rays, CTs, MRIs. And we look at all these fancy gizmos <laughs> that we have, right? And that's the frustrating thing, I think, um, for patients is definitely frustrating um, for myself as a clinician, as a physician that takes care of patients uh, very commonly, right, in the emergency department with these complaints. It's frustrating for me, too, when the imaging that we have, um, all of these CAT scans and MRIs, right, it does not always correlate, um, meaning there are individuals that have these scans completely normal that are in excruciating pain. Um, on the other hand, there are many times where we discover these things. We were looking for something else. We were evaluating the patient for uh, cancer. Maybe we were looking for um, other pathology, other problems, when we actually find things like herniated discs or we find extensive degenerative disease, right? That extensive breakdown and arthritis um, of the spine. And meanwhile, the individual has absolutely no pain. And so this has been well-established that 
really there's no correlation between what we see on these imaging studies and the individual's actual level or complaint of pain or the extent of their illness. I mean, even when we talk about herniated discs, right, there's times that we see these discs uh, not only bulging out, but they're pressing on things, nerves, um, maybe even a, a portion of the spinal cord in the patient is doing fine, right? Um, unfortunately, it just just does not always explain uh, the pain, and it's common that we see these things um, found incidentally on MRIs or other advanced imaging studies, and meanwhile, the patient has absolutely no symptoms. And so what this has led to, um, and really even right, some of the advanced fancy pants equipment that uh, has been developed uh, in recent years and some of the um, imaging techniques that have been honed, um, there's actually some new theories emerging uh, regarding this pain, and it's really led to the emergence of biochemical and inflammatory theories um, as explanation for these type of pain syndromes, especially chronic low back pain. And it essentially states that after such a long time of an individual dealing with such pain, the way that the body senses and experiences pain changes. There are changes in the neurons that pick up these pain signals um, in the periphery and even changes in the cells that interpret these signals in the brain, right? And that because of these changes, it can lead to and be an explanation for uh, some of the pain that individuals chronic low back pain sufferers experience. And so one thing that really results from all of this um, and really to boil it down and, and is that chronic low back pain um, is not only difficult to diagnose, but it's also difficult to treat. And so this has posed a particular problem uh, to modern medicine, right? Which I think our goal every time, at least my goal, every time I go into a patient's room is to right, especially if they're having pain, is to extinguish that pain. Um, and unfortunately, it's, uh, especially when we talk about managing chronic low back pain, um, there are many times I go into the room telling the patient, like, hey, I'm going to try to the best of my ability to get control of your pain or to lessen your pain, but I cannot promise that I will extinguish it. And even when we talk about all the medicine that we have today, everything from Tylenol, ibuprofen to um, opioids to things like muscle relaxers and um, all of these different dermal or transdermal medications that can be put on like lidoderm patches or lidocaine patches, anesthetics that can go through the skin. Um, we've really had a difficult time achieving good outcomes dealing with chronic low back pain. And even when we talk about procedural and surgical interventions, everything from intraarticular injections or injections, uh, directly uh, into the spine of steroids and numbing agents or anesthetics to even right full-blown surgery, um, things like fusion of the spine. Um, we have not had the outcomes that we would expect um, when we look at modern medicine and all of the technological advances that we've seen um, in recent decades. And so that is why we will be dedicating the next program to really diving into chronic low back pain, uh, but I did want to just sort of give this overview so that you understand, right, the problem, um, the scope of this problem, 
and really why we need to come up with some strategies to deal with it. But I will not leave you hanging, ladies and gentlemen, right? Again, there is some hope on the horizon because uh, one of the programs, in addition to talking about chronic low back pain itself, we will be talking about the advances in our understanding when it comes to exercise and movement, rehab, physical therapy, right? The extraordinary advancements and, and improvements in outcomes that we've seen in that field of medicine when it comes to chronic low back pain. So there is hope. And that's where I want to leave you regarding chronic low back pain uh, tonight. Now, you know, Health in Harlem, ladies and gentlemen, and one of the things that we really, really focus on on this program is prevention. And so with that said, I do want to get into risk factors and prevention of low back pain, period, right? Um, if we can stop this before it happens, I think really that's where we really ought to uh, put our attention. And so that's what I'm going to talk about briefly next. And so as far as risk factors, uh, we know there are a number of things that can precipitate or lead to an individual being at increased risk for developing either acute or chronic low back pain. And this in includes age. So as we get older, right, increased age, we know that there are many illnesses that can um, arise. And one of them is back pain. Um, especially when we talk about the degenerative changes that take place in the spinal column, the degenerative ch changes that take place outside the spinal, spinal column, uh, right? And even we talk about things like referred pain. So pain or arthritis that develops in the knee or the hip can affect your back as well, leading to uh, chronic or acute low back pain, right? Um, especially um, if we are shifting our weight or changing our stance or gait, um, our cadence, any of these changes that result from knee pain or hip pain or pain outside of the spinal column can affect the back itself as we redistribute our weight um, or change, right, the way that we are sort of carry our, carrying ourselves uh, day to day. And also, as we said, right, there are degenerative changes that can take place in the spine that can predispose an individual to developing back pain. Another major risk factor, obesity. Um, the, essentially, the more weight that we carry on our bodies, the more weight that our spine, right, the load-bearing weight that our spine has to bear um, each and every day, 24-7, right? So every second that we're out of the bed, up and about, our body, our spine is dealing with that weight or bearing that weight. And so it makes sense. The heavier we are, the more likely we are to develop low back pain. Um, and even when we talk about the wear and tear that takes place, right, uh, these degenerative changes that take place, um, they are accelerated, right, with an increase in our weight. And so obesity and even just being overweight, uh, those are major risk factors for developing low back pain. Next, we definitely need to discuss injuries themselves. Um, and when we talk about injuries, we're talking about everything from um, injuries from motor vehicle accidents, right? So driving safer can definitely help us prevent back pain, right? Uh, not getting into car accidents, but also how we go about our day-to-day -day routines, especially at work as occupational injuries um, and even the wear and tear that comes with how we um, carry ourselves day-to-day -day at work, right? Those can be major factors uh, leading to back pain. And so I got to go back right to my my days working at Staples where 
um, watching those OSHA videos in training. And it was like, yo, how do you pick up a box? Like these simple things, right? And the way that we lift objects. Um, so lifting with our legs, right? Keeping our spine straight. We are going to um, flex at the knees. So bend at the knees and go down and lift that box, keeping our spinal column uh, in alignment. I was also an EMT uh, for about six years. So lifting patients um, in and out of the ambulance, lifting patients, right, um, that we went and picked up on scene, um, definitely a lot of load bearing. Um, and we know that, you know, with the obesity crisis in this country, he was lifting some heavy patients. And um, one thing that I definitely credit my health, um, especially when it comes to my spinal health um, to this day, is just the way that I was lifting those patients. I was very cognizant of that um, and would always really try my best to make sure that I was lifting with the appropriate techniques in order to avoid injury. But another thing to add to that really is sort of how our bodies, right, in terms of uh, mechanics, right, improper mechanics combined with muscular instability, um, this can also set us up for pain, especially when we talk about the occupational risks um, day to day. And so uh, in our one of our future programs, we will be right talking about physical medicine and rehab medicine. And one of the things that you're going to hear come up, right, is really how we exercise. Um, tons of literature out there showing that um, contrary to what we used to believe in that Right. Physical activity, working out, predisposing us to developing things like acute and chronic low back pain. Um, actually, there are many st studies showing the reverse is true. Right. That the more we exercise, the more active we are, the lower your likelihood of developing these um, problems. And so with that said, muscular instability or even imbalances can predispose us to pain. So if you're that person that's in the day, the gym every day. Uh, squatting your heart out, great. Your glutes will look excellent. <laughs> it's probably um, as well as probably your your legs. You will look great, uh, but you might be putting a lot of strain on your back, especially if you're not doing other exercises to balance what you are doing um, in terms of those squats, right? So um, when we talk about implementing exercise routines, right? I always say you want to go with the experts. You want to have some sort of consultation or some sort of idea, right, to train in a way that you will not create these muscle imbalances, which can set us up for not only back pain, but other um, pain syndromes and even chronic pain syndromes attributed to the imbalances between our muscles. I mean, if you want to put it real simply, right, uh, let's talk about Newton's third law, right, with every action is an equal and opposite reaction, right, so we need some balance in our training in order to avoid injury, especially when we talk about the lower back. Another thing to look out for as far as risk factors are psychosocial stressors. Um, and so yes, the things that happen not only in our bodies, but outside of our bodies can have an effect on our backs. And so there are individuals that have um, either the development of pain or exacerbation of their chronic low back pain um, where stressors, right, um, things that are happening outside of their body around them, financial stressors, um, relationship issues, um, anxiety, things like depression, so emotional disturbances, they can also manifest as back pain. Um, and so the psychosocial stressors, right, 
um, especially when we're not seeing uh, abnormalities on the imaging. As we said before, we can't really nail it as far as what the uh, anatomic right or structural cause might be. Then we begin to think outside of the body itself and consider psychosocial stressors that might be contributing to a person's pain. And then finally, believe it or not, um, and this is actually we have the Great American Smokeout coming up um, this month. And smoking is a risk factor for the development of chronic pain, chronic low back pain, um, and even acute low back pain. And so that's just another thing to think. I had to get that in there, right? Just <laughs> smoking cessation can go a long way. We talked about the risks that it poses to our health. Um, and so smoking, ladies and gentlemen, is a risk factor for the development of low back pain. And so with that said, let's cut it out, right? Um, and even secondhand smoke. Um, as well. Just some things to think about. Now, as we begin to wrap up, I do want to write as we prepare for the rest of our series dealing with low back pain. Um, one thing that I wanted to get out there were the red flags to look out for, right? Because um, there are many instances, as we said, a lot of uh, individuals developing acute low back pain, they will fully recover. Even individuals that have been diagnosed with chronic low back pain, there is a fair number of them that will go on to fully recover um, and not have any complications. Um, and even when we talk about imaging, right? When we talk about taking a look with x-rays, CT scans, and MRIs, not all cases of back pain need those tests done. Um, actually, the American College of Radiology, they actually pu published appropriateness criteria for low back pain um, and uncomplicated acute low back pain and or radiculopathy, which we'll talk about um, in a later program. Right. Many times these are benign. They're self-limited conditions and they don't warrant any imaging, not even x-rays. Um, I've actually had a number of patients that have been disappointed. Right. When I've treated them, they feel better. Um, I even say that, hey, you probably have a strain, right? The fact that the pain hurt a little bit more when you moved a certain way and it started after you were lifting those heavy shopping bags on Black Friday. Well, that's probably the cause of your pain and the x-rays are probably not going to tell you much. I can't tell you the amount of times that um, individuals were disappointed <laughs> and wanted the x-ray, um, even though, um, you know, I have to tell them you're going to be exposed to radiation unnecessarily. I'm going to jack your bill up. You're going to be here longer than you need to be. Um, but yeah, the, this is backed up by the American College of Radiology saying that in those instances, um, x-rays or any imaging not needed. Um, really, the determining factor, right, that is going to say whether or not a person needs imaging or any pictures taken of their back is going to be determined by the red flags. And so what are those red flags? Well, one major red flag, right, especially when we talk about those vertebrae, we talk about those intervertebral discs and all of the structures, right, that can encroach on that canal where the spinal cord travels through. Well, neurologic problems. So individuals experiencing weakness um, on one side of the body versus the other, um, especially if they have difficulty walking or cannot walk, um, if they are having difficulty with their bladder. So either they are unable to pee. That is a huge red flag. You cannot make a urinary stream, um, whether it is a male or a female. Um, 
that is a huge red flag. If you are peeing on yourself or pooping yourself, what we call incontinence, um, that is a red flag. Uh, basically, anything that implies that the spinal cord is being compressed, that is a red flag that warrants special imaging, usually um, a, an MRI. When we talk about individuals that have a history of cancer, um, certain cancers are very well known to spread to uh, the bone, especially the spinal column, and they can cause not only severe pain, but they can also cause um, when the, when the uh, bone breaks, especially after it's been weakened by um, a cancer, um, it can cause problems with the spinal cord as well if those bones break and impinge upon the spinal cord. So in addition to those neurologic symptoms, another big red flag is a history of cancer, specifically prostate cancer, breast cancer. When we talk about individuals with kidney cancer, and even uh, lung cancer. These are very well-known cancers that spread to the bone. They can especially spread to the spine. Um, and another thing that goes with that is uh, the severity of pain. And now it's expected that, right, as we said, some of these muscle strains and sprains, individuals might have more pain when they're walking around or doing things, especially particular movements that might've exacerbated or led to the pain in the first place. Um, when we talk about individuals having this pain right at rest or even worsened by rest or not relieved by rest, um, then we have a problem. That's another red flag, um, especially individuals having night pain, right? They're having severe back pain at night when they are in bed or sleeping. That is a major red, red flag. And while we're on the topic of cancer, uh, let's talk about unexplained weight loss as a red flag. Um, this just goes right. Uh, a lot of times in individuals with uh, cancer, especially if it is undiagnosed, um, unintentional weight loss, another big red flag in the context of low back pain. So if a person has been dropping a lot of weight um, and they're not working out or dieting to lose that weight and they are having severe back pain, that is a red flag. You need to be in the ER immediately um, and it is probably going to warrant imaging of your spine to make sure there are no complications as we have previously mentioned. Uh, another big red flag, immunosuppression. So individuals on chemotherapy, individuals with diseases such as um, AIDS um, and HIV, they might warrant further imaging. Intravenous drug use, another big red flag, um, as this can lead to abscesses or uh, basically pockets of pus that can develop in or around the spinal cord or in the spinal column itself, um, causing things like osteomyelitis um, or even what we call an epidural abscess, uh, very dangerous, and that will likely require imaging to make that diagnosis, right? Uh, also, other red flags, fever. So back pain, severe back pain, especially if this is a new complaint for you, you're developing the severe back pain, and you have a fever, big red flag, you need to be in the ER immediately um, and you will likely require some imaging to make sure that you are safe and that you're not having any complications. Um, and then also uh, back pain in the context of a urinary tract infection, another red flag. Um, you got burning when you pee, difficulty urinating, um, maybe a fever to go with that. Well, you probably need to be in the ER and evaluated 
uh, to make sure that you are safe. So, ladies and gentlemen, those are the red flags. And we will be going over that again um, in the upcoming episodes in this series. Now, that is it, ladies and gentlemen. That is our overview of low back pain. And there is much more to come. So I, I really encourage you to just stay tuned for those uh, coming episodes as we will be delving into this a lot deeper. Now, with that said, ladies and gentlemen, I want to shout out the rest of the Health in Harlem team out there. Um, also, I want to shout out our WHCR family, including Angela Harden, the general manager of WHCR, and also Tina Dixon, our production manager. And also, I want to shout you out, the listeners of our program. We could not have such a wonderful program without a great listenership. And so shout out to you all out there. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas, Harlem. Take care of yourself.